This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. At a time when many bulge bracket investment banks are drowning as a result of the financial crisis, Mollison Company is swimming against the tide. Founded in July 2007 by Kenneth D. Mollis, a Wall Street veteran, the Los Angeles-based firm has been busy hiring. In just about 15 months, it has recruited more than 150 people, including some 100 bankers, besides opening offices in Chicago, New York, and Boston. How will the continuing financial turmoil affect the fledgling investment bank's business? What opportunities can investors find amid the wreckage? In an interview with Knowledge at Wharton, Molis discussed these issues and more. Our guest today is Ken Molis, founder of Molis & Company. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. To begin with, I wonder if we could start with the issue that's on everyone's mind, that is the global financial crisis. What's your view of the crisis, and do you think uh, it's run its course? Uh, my view of the crisis is, uh, I'm not sure at this stage, it's uh, easy to add uh, a lot new to it. I think it has not run its course. I think we're seeing a tremendous uh, unwind of leverage that's been built up for many years. And I think that what most people are finding is their inability to catch up with all of the ramifications of leverage. I think most people extrapolate from their most recent or even a long life for a lot of us who've been in the business from sort of 19 early to mid 80s on, this is the only possible, uh, the only possible relevant outcomes were sort of zero growth, three, 4% growth, uh, expansion, things got better. Uh, over time, more credit was made available with slight dips in between. And I think actually people are having a tough time in their own imagination uh, figuring out what the next year or two might look like and how severe the credit unwind could be. Well, what do you think about the impact on investment banks? Well, by definition, they were the most levered vehicles in the world. Um, 30 to 1, 40 to 1, 25 to 1, uh, using all sorts of derivative uh, instruments as capital even. Um, you know, if you really got down to the basic common equity, uh, some of those uh, ratios would be even less. And so I think if you, uh, if you are the most levered entity into a gigantic unwind of leverage, it's going to be a significant problem. What are the biggest risks you see in today's market conditions? I think it uh, continues to be the inability to access capital. I think the thing that uh, the Treasury was trying to address... And uh, really, the, the most worrisome about it all is the complete uh, inability for even the consumer or the basic industrial company who is not uh, over-levered but just has kind of a standard amount of, uh, you know, you might call it even prudent leverage, but it happens to come due during a time when almost no one will extend credit. And I think those basic... Uh, that basic transactional environment in the world that we've taken for granted is just not functioning right now. And the ramifications that are hard to figure out. Uh, where do you think the problems will appear next? I think you'll continue to see uh, problems in things like uh, the hedge fund community, uh, private equity, anything that's used, leveraged to increase its return. But I do think the one that's coming and I think will affect the general economy more than anything is credit cards is uh, even what we call our strong banks today have something 
that, uh, that they have lent out or uh, lent to somebody. Uh, that is the basic business of a bank. So I don't care if you're one of the strongest banks in the world, you are dependent on somebody paying back a loan you've made to them in the form of whether it be uh, a prime first mortgage, uh, a credit card, something like that, uh, the auto leasing companies. I think there are basic forms of credit that as the economy starts to feel the pinch from, uh, from what we're in, uh, you'll see some, some things pop up that will surprise once again. Uh, as we know, the crisis has been quite international in nature. And just this week, China has announced a $586 billion uh, stimulus package, a lot of it being invested in infrastructure. Is that a good idea? I think it's a good idea because um, if the world is going to have this problem together, I've, I've long been a believer that there was no decoupling of the economies. Um, that the uh, the world was still interconnected in a way that if the U.S. caught a major illness, um, uh, the, the world would, would catch on. Um, so I think the idea that uh, the U.K. just lowered interest rates dramatically, that China put a stimulus package, and so that you don't have a currency situation where uh, a single currency is out of whack because they're stimulating their economy or their region uh, faster than others, I think is a good thing. And so I believe the fact that this seems to be a coordinated effort to, uh, to stimulate the world is, is just going to be better for the currency market, which will add one less piece of volatility to, to the capital markets. Now, given the volatility of the markets, how do you see the prospects for M&A? Okay, M&A is very difficult right now. Um, as I said, there are two ways to do M&A. One is uh, through a cash acquisition, and there's no way to finance uh, a cash acquisition right now unless you have the cash on your balance sheet, which very few people do. And, and if you did, you wouldn't want to use it all in, in one acquisition. And the other way is to do a stock-for-stock stock transaction, which I think you'll see more of. The trouble with a stock-for-stock stock, uh, type acquisition today is you can literally go in to see a company at uh, 9.30 at the beginning of the market, and between the time you're presenting and the end of your presentation, the company's stock could move 20%. And, and I'm talking about major American Fortune 100 companies in the course of a two- or three-hour presentation. You could have their entire value move uh, 10 20% on one of these uh, volatile days. Very hard for two companies to come up with relative values, which is what a stock-for-stock stock merger is. It's very hard to agree on a relative value merger when you have that kind of volatility. So I think for the time being, um, I'm sure there'll be exceptions, but pretty much all M&A is on standby. Well, I wonder if you could turn now to the to the, uh, your own uh, background and starting your own company. You were the president of UBS Investment Bank before you founded Mullison Company in July 2007. That was when the market was at its peak. What inspired you to take that risk? You know, there's a, there's a moment in time when you're uncomfortable, and I can't say that I could uh, pinpoint it, but I did not feel that the, uh, the large-scale financial conglomerate, that, and I happen to be at UBS, I think there were others uh, out there, I just didn't feel that we were structured to service the client base the way uh, I had uh, for the last 27 years of my career prior to that. And it's one of those moments when I can't tell you everything uh, it w that went into it, where you trust your gut. And you're right, it was a very difficult time to get out. It was actually right after 
I think the, the maybe the best year in the history of Wall Street, the, the 2006 uh, uh, year. But something felt wrong about the product and the way we were delivering it to our clients at that point. And today with 2020 hindsight, what do you think about the timing of your decision? Well, in retrospect, it was, uh, it was uh, fortunate. Uh, I think it would have been very tough to have left an organization like that six or eight months later when the first signs of problems came about. Even if you were not involved in them, I, I would have found it very difficult to leave in the midst of uh, um, a situation. It's somewhat easier to leave when everything seems to be going well and, uh, and you're moving on. So it was very fortunate in that regard. And from a business point of view, what we're trying to accomplish, it turns out to be a good time to have left as well. How have you positioned Modus and Company vis-a-vis the other, what are called bulge bracket banks, and what sets you apart? We are trying to go back to, uh, you know, what I call old-fashioned relationship investment banking. I think it's very hard in an organization. Some of these organizations are as large as 300,000 people. Um, even, even the investment banking subsidiary of some of these large financial conglomerates are 25,000 people. I think maintaining the quality of a relationship, which investment banking was always uh, an industry where you were the CEO's partner in his strategic plan or her strategic plan and what they, were, they really wanted to accomplish and a confidant. And I think it's hard, to, um, it's hard to organize and maintain that culture in, in organizations that grow to be the size of 25,000, 50,000, 100,000. Um, so what we're trying to do is a very hands-on, very uh, relationship-based, long-term uh, partnership concept with, the, uh, with these companies that we're advising. And I actually think, I mean, I hate to say it's kind of existed 20 years ago and maybe even 15 years ago and seems to not exist uh, in the market today. What would you say is your business model? Our business model, I think, is a very simple one. People ask me that, how do you, make, uh, how you, how do you know what, uh, how do you make money, how do you budget it? Well, we don't budget, and you don't have a business model. I tell our people, you do great work. You become partners. You put yourself, every meeting you have, put yourself in the shoes of the person across the table, whether it's a board of directors or a CEO. Don't think about what you know, what Mollus and company needs. Do not think about any type of uh, issues around us. We're well capitalized. We we are in uh, we are a partnership. Uh, we have no bad debts on our books. We don't have to feed a distribution machine. All we have to do is be excellent advisors and trusted as what we're saying. The clients will make you successful. That's really my philosophy. Is is our clients, if we're providing that kind of service and it's unobtainable anywhere else and they're really close and they've invested with their partner at our firm, uh, it's an irreplaceable relationship, it's a valuable relationship, and over time they will actually find ways to make our company successful. You know, that's very interesting because at a time today when some of the most prestigious names on Wall Street are in a shambles, uh, your firm has grown in about 15 months to about 150 professionals, including 100 investment bankers. What's driving your growth? Well, two things. One is uh, the desire for um, the clients to have that relationship. When we when we show up and we put a 20-year veteran on the field and, uh, and, and um, they have a relationship and they're not selling cash management or foreign exchange or commodities or convertible bonds on a Friday and 
on Monday they come back in with the next product du jour, but are actually trying to think through the problems that are that are important to the person on the other side of the table at that moment. It's a it's a new product. I hate to say it. I wish it was not true, but it's a new product. So that's number one. And number two, on the banking side, on the talent side, people are searching for a place to conduct that business. And um, that doesn't, you know, for them as well, it seems that the, the thing they've been trained to do um, and, and that they really want to do, investment bankers, I believe at heart, I think it, a lot of them get a bad rap. I think it, they really do want to give good advice. They want to be free to be their client's partner. It's just being involved in, in large companies with budgeting and annual bonus cycles and 360 review processes and the, the constant pressure to, to sell another product to their, to their client. It, it is, becomes a very difficult thing to put up that wall and, and put yourself in the other person's seat and only, and only, do what, uh, only provide the services that that person needs at that time. So you've been recruiting so actively. Uh, what do you look for in people when you hire them? You know, it's funny. When you make it to this stage, and I say this is when I come down here and recruit at Wharton, most people are pretty smart. So, you know, you don't have to actually look for that. Look, it, it pays to be intelligent. And But I find that if you've made it to the Wharton Business School, let's say, or, or even to uh, a 15-year veteran in investment banking, Often you you have some level of intelligence that can get the job done. So I've said uh, what differentiates um, a great investment banker is who cares the most. I actually believe, uh, do you care? Uh, do you actually care about the outcome? Are you up at 2 in the morning wondering about the details? Um, and you could tell if somebody cares. I think that uh, I think our clients can tell right away who you care about when you walk in the room. Do you care about them? Do you care about you? <laughs> Are you worried about your job? Are you worried about your bonus? Are you worried about the future of the company you are about to advise? And so I think, um, funny uh, concept, but I've always said the investment banker who wins is the one who cares the most. How do you see your growth plans in the U.S. and internationally going forward? Well, in this market, it's very tough. As I said, show me a person with a five-year plan, I'll show you a fool. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, the uh, right now we have five day a series of uh, five day plans. I'm I'm half kidding about that. We look. We want to become and are uh, fully on our way to becoming a full scale investment bank. I know the word boutique has become the concept, but back in uh, my time there were uh, firms. They had on the order of a thousand people, uh, possibly two thousand at their peak. They were called First Boston, Solomon Brothers, Donaldson, Lufkin, and Ginrat, and Alex Brown, and things like that. Or, Warburg and London, you could go on and on. They did exist, and they were great places, and their clients loved them, and, uh, and the bankers loved being there. By the way, loving being there is a very important thing. You get a much higher quality of individual, and you get somebody much more dedicated to their job, which means they care more, which, as I said, is the, all those fundamentals going into making somebody care about the outcome. So my goal is to continue to build the firm to that kind of a level. I want to provide the uh, the old line investment banking services to a corporation, and uh, probably larger, as you say, uh, you were saying, because the world is more global. And uh, we have opened in London about uh, two months ago now, and uh, we will continue to uh, populate uh, offices uh, in places where we think our clients are going to want to have information flow and need our services.
Are you also likely to open in places, emerging markets like Shanghai or the Middle East? Yes, I think very much so. Interesting to those markets, you have to get London right first. So uh, I get asked this question a lot, and I say, hey, we've been, in, we've been up and running now for uh, less than 18 months. We have 160 people, and we've, we've accomplished a lot, so you can't be everywhere instantaneously. And um, so you have to do things one step at a time. And in order to get to the Middle East or Shanghai, you must have a decent operation in London just on time zone and travel time and expertise, etc. It's a requirement. Very hard to run Shanghai out of the New York time zone. You've had a really long career in investment banking dating back to the 1970s. And you've worked with people like Donald Trump, Steve Wynn. Uh, Ron Burkle, John Klug, and so forth. During your career, what do you think has been the biggest leadership or business challenge that you have faced? And how did you overcome it, and what did you learn from it? Uh, you know, probably the, uh, I think the most searing event, maybe because it was when it was happened, was the collapse of Drexel Burnham in my life. Um, I'd worked very hard. Time seems to truncate now, but I got out of Wharton in 1981. And boy, I worked hard at Drexel to to get what I thought was uh, on the on this path toward a great career and a wonderful investment bank. When I came out of Drexel, uh, when I came out of sorry Wharton and went to Drexel, it was a very it was an unprofitable firm in 1981. And five years later, I think they made two and a half billion dollars pre-tax, and it was like a rocket ship ride up, and uh, it was sort of like a rocket ship ride down as well. And the period from 1988 to about 1990, when uh, the firm came under investigation, our leadership, Mike Milken, was forced out. And there were um, incredibly, um, there were things that uh, nobody could prepare you for. Um, whether your office was being bugged, whether things were happening, you were, you, uh, were trying to evaluate um, very significant issues in a world where uh, you know there were no lessons on this before, nobody could teach you what to do, and how do you uh, how do you lead people through that? What do you do with your career? What do you do with your life? And it seems like a long time ago, but I was seven or eight years in the business. I had devoted a lot of time and energy to making my career at Drexel a success, and all of a sudden was facing a catastrophic outcome. And I just think the um, the experience is one, and I tell this to some people again coming out of Wharton. I said that experience might have been one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. Not at the time, by the way. <laughs> at the time, it had to be uh, one of the most difficult I could remember. But it taught you a lot. You know, you get fast forward to this credit crisis, to what's going on, and you learn a lot uh, about the far end of risk and what uh, outcomes that you don't think are possible, and when they become possible, how quickly they envelop you, how impossible it is to stop um, the, the negative cycle of bad news that seems to surround you once you get into a problem. And I do think it's helped me to, uh, it's helped me to, to create and make decisions during my career. You asked me about leaving UBS, and I think possibly, uh, having gone through what I did uh, in, in the late 80s at Drexel, it just made it easier to follow your gut instinct and, and do things before they become apparent to everybody else. And I, so I just think it was a good experience. If a young person wants to go <clears throat> into investment banking today, what advice would you give him or her about how the field has changed and where, where it's going to be? Well, first of all, I think uh, investment banking is the greatest career um, there is. 
you mentioned some of those people I get to work with, and I have. I've, I think I've worked with some of the smartest uh, entrepreneurs and businessmen and CEOs in the world. And so every day is like going back to school. If, uh, if you shut up and listen sometimes when you're in these meetings, you're going to hear incredible um, things. You mentioned some names. You know, listening to, to somebody like Steve Wynn talk about a design of and the architecture and the development of casino resorts and services. You're listening to uh, somebody that, uh, you know, is, is I, I consider one of the greatest, you know, of all time. You, you John Kluge in the media field. And <clears throat> so your ability in our business to continue to learn every day. Every day I go to a meeting with a CEO and you learn something fantastic about their business and their insights in the world and what's going on. And, and so you can actually continue to uh, work and get an education, both things which are, uh, which are phenomenal things to, to put together in one job. So I, I would say to everybody, investment banking is, is a great career. It's not just a stepping stone to some other uh, job. I know a lot of uh, people start to think of it that way. It's the best career there is on the street. But make sure you go to an investment bank. And I say that these days, uh, in the last 10 years, that has gotten confused. There are investment banks, and there are now what I believe commercial banks, um, and I believe, or financial conglomerates. And I believe you want to understand uh, that an investment bank is a highly specialized uh, place in which you actually sit down and think about your client as a, as a partner, like I've said, and not as somebody that you've been sent out to sell a series of products to. And make sure when you're viewing which, where you're going, make sure you keep in mind what the theory and what the culture is at that firm. One final question. What's your long-term dream for Modus & Company? <laughs> I've said this. My long-term dream is, uh, I think, is you ever, uh, I know when, when you pick up a history book, you always look back and you see some crinky old picture with somebody wearing a funny suit and a uh, top hat or a cane. And you say, hey, there's the uh, first partner meeting of the old Morgan Stanley back in 1908. Or there's, you know, some old line firm that got, and they're, they're, they're always wearing some outdated clothing because it was 100 years old. And um, and they have the roll-top desks or something. But I always love looking back and saying, I can't believe that's when it all started. Uh, or when you read the history of Goldman Sachs and it was, a, you know, a, a commodities trading firm or a retail, uh, I guess they were a factor of, you know, my, my long-term goal is sometime in the future, whether and I hope I'm still alive for it, but somebody's looking back at the old photographs. We actually took them at our founding dinner, and I said, let's put them on the wall. Maybe someday somebody will be looking at our haircuts and our clothes and, and everything about it and say, can you believe that's when Molas and Company started? And I hope one day we're mentioned in the same breath as, uh, you know, the Morgans and the Goldmans uh, of today are, uh, are mentioned 50 years from now. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Pleasure. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.